Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Department of Justice's successful prosecution of the leaders of the Oath Keepers militia, who were found guilty of seditious conspiracy, a rarely used Civil War-era law. Joining us to explain the difference between treason and seditious conspiracy and why these convictions matter is Carlton Larson, Professor of Constitutional Law and Legal History at the University of California, Davis. One of the nation's leading authorities on the law of treason, he's the author of On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law, and The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution. Then, with both Republican leaders McConnell and McCarthy expressing outrage at Trump's Thanksgiving dinner at Mar-a-Lago with the anti-Semite Kanye West and the Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes, very few, with the exception of Liz Cheney, are pointing out that Nick Fuentes is one of the country's leading cheerleaders for Vladimir Putin. So little wonder Trump said Fuentes gets me. Joining us to explore why influential Americans like Elon Musk admire and support Putin is Robert Mackey, a senior writer at The Intercept who writes about national and international news through the prism of social media. Previously, he was a reporter and columnist for The New York Times, where he anchored the newspaper's breaking news blog, The Lead, for five years and wrote a news analysis column, Open Source, from 2014 to 2016. We will discuss his latest articles at The Intercept. Left-wing voices are silenced on Twitter as far-right trolls advise Elon Musk. Rupert Murdoch is having the same problem Dr. Frankenstein once faced with his monster. And Twitter allows Russian officials to share anti-Semitic cartoon of Zelensky. Then finally, we'll look into an alarming article in Tuesday's Los Angeles Times. Fentanyl deaths in L.A. County soared 1,280% between 2016 and 2021, report finds. And speak with Sam Quinones, a journalist, author, and storyteller whose two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration, True Tales from Another Mexico and Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. His books include Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and his latest book just out in paperback is The Least of Us, True Tales of America, Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Carlton Larson, Professor of Constitutional Law and Legal History at the University of California, Davis, one of the nation's leading authorities on the law of treason. He's the author of On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law, and The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution. Welcome to Background Briefing, Carlton Larson. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of the convictions of two of the leaders of the Oath Keepers, 
who were found guilty of seditious conspiracy, a Civil War-era law, and other defendants, Jessica Watkins, Kenneth Harrelson, and Thomas Caldwell, were found guilty of other felonies, as indeed was Stuart Rhodes and uh, Kelly Meggs. There's going to be more trials of Oath Keepers as well as Proud Boys who are being charged with seditious conspiracy. So do you consider these uh, convictions important? Oh, I think they're very important. I think this is a a big win um, for the Justice Department. They they kind of went big on on these charges. Um, They got a lot of attention when they charged um, seditious conspiracy, and so they really sort of had to deliver, um, and they did. Um, You know, if, you know, for some bizarre reason... Uh, all the defendants have been acquitted. Um, that really would have been egg in the face um, of the Justice Department. Um, you know, they didn't get every every person convicted of seditious conspiracy, but uh, they got the two uh, most culpable uh, defendants. And so those those convictions are um, very much sort of a vindication of the Justice Department and its, its litigation strategy in these cases. And what is the difference then between seditious conspiracy and treason? Um, so treason is sort of actually you know, limited by uh, the U.S. Constitution to uh, adhering to the, the enemies of the United States uh, or levying war uh, against the United States. And uh, levying war against the United States here would typically mean uh, in being involved in some type of armed uprising uh, with the intent uh, to overthrow the government. Um, by contrast, um, seditious conspiracy isn't, isn't limited uh, by the Constitution in any way, so it's just a federal statute that uh, defines the crime. And the key of seditious conspiracy essentially is agreement. Um, so it's ultimately a, it's not a sedition statute, it's a conspiracy statute. Uh, and the essence of conspiracy is uh, an agreement uh, to engage in, uh, in this case, uh, seditious conduct. And so that was really the, the main focus uh, of the prosecution was proving uh, this agreement among uh, the, the Oath Keepers. So, but the Constitution literally spells out treason, does it not? And also mentions giving aid and comfort to the enemy? Yeah, so aid and comfort to the enemy is, is another strand of um, treason that, that typically involves assistance to uh, a, you know, a foreign enemy, usually a foreign um, state or group with whom we are uh, in a state of, of open war. And so um, that wouldn't have been applicable to the to the January 6th events. But the fact that Vladimir Putin's main strategy is to exploit divisions in this country that already exist and exacerbate them and turn Americans against each other, you couldn't make that case uh, of treason? Or is that no, too much No, I don't think so. Reach? I mean, so, yeah, it's too much of a reach. First of all, even, you know, Russia, is, as bad as they are, we're not in a state of open war with them, so they're not... Uh, formally um, an enemy. Um, and I think the other problem with that argument is that that would just sweep in, you know, so many people who are essentially useful idiots uh, for, you know, for foreign leaders. Um, you know, so anyone who then was sort of involved in sowing um, discord in the United States could be seen somehow as an agent um, uh, for Russia. And um, that would, you know, sweep in all kinds of sort of legitimate uh, political discourse that uh, we would not want to see criminalized. So I mentioned, Carlton Larson, that there'll be an upcoming trial of the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrico Tario. So collectively, could those trials end up differently with an acquittal? Um, well, it's, well, it's certainly possible. I'm, I'm, I'm less familiar with the details in the 
in the Proud Boy case, but you know, when you're dealing with juries, you you never know, uh, right? Because only one juror who has a very idiosyncratic view and who sticks with it, um, you know, can create a hang jury and a and a mistrial. Um, so you never know that that could easily happen. Uh, I think you know the fact that um, we did get convictions in this case will be something that those defendants will probably be thinking about um, if they are thinking about you know, possible plea agreements. Um, rather than going to trial. And it's hard to know which way that would cut. They might look at this and say, okay, the government got a conviction, so I should be more worried. Um, on the other hand, they might think, well, there were two people who were acquitted uh, of seditious conspiracy, so maybe um, I've got a chance. And so I think part of that would be sort of their lawyers taking a hard look at how close their cases are to the ones who are convicted versus the ones who are acquitted, um, and then factoring that into their calculus as to whether um, they might want to seek a, a plea agreement. But would Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs be more interested in a plea agreement ahead of sentencing? Um, well, well, at this point, I don't know why um, what they would have to offer. Um, so I think that you know they, they, the time to make the plea agreement is before you put the government to all the expense and time uh, of a multi-week uh, criminal trial. So I think that option is basically off the table for them. Well, a lot of pundits are saying that this verdict in the Oath Keepers trial is going to expose Trump even more and make him more vulnerable to these charges? What are these uh, pundits getting at there? I'm not sure what the connection is. Well, that's, I mean, I I think, you know, to the extent that there had been an acquittal, arguably that might um, help Trump. But I mean, I think these are very different cases. Um, because it's not clear what extent if any, Trump had with these particular individuals. Um, it sounds like there may have been some connection between um, one of them and maybe someone in the White House, um, but there's certainly nothing um, that the government has so far, at least, at least that I've seen, that would suggest um, that you could build a very similar case against Trump. I mean, his his situation, I think, is very different. Uh, it would focus more on the, the, the speech he gave at the Ellipse uh, in the rally leading up to um, those events, and then that raises um, more more difficult questions about um, free speech. So I don't know to what extent the Justice Department is considering uh, indicting Trump over uh, January sixth. Uh, uh, it would, I think, depend a lot on um, you know what they've what evidence they might have, which has not been made public yet, um, and so I'm obviously not privy to, to any of that. Well, the. Reports indicate that Stuart Rhodes could implicate Roger Stone. That seems to be the the assumption that Stone is the link between Trump and Stuart Rhodes. Is that something that you think is viable? Well, I mean, it's I mean anything's possible. Um, I certainly don't know whether that's um, true or not. And so maybe if Rhodes has evidence of uh, you know of people higher up um, and he's willing to essentially flip on them, you know, then that's something that the government might take into account um, when, you know, considering sentencing recommendations. Um, but I, but I don't know what Rhodes has um, and what he would have to have would also need to be in some sense verified because, you know, you can always imagine criminal defendants who just, you know, make up something to tar somebody else you know, in order to get themselves um, out of jail. So it would need to be, um, credible um, and backed up by other evidence. But if he had that, um, then that could potentially get very interesting. 
Well, it seems that the, one of the main reasons why these characters were convicted was there was so much of them on tape. I mean, I heard a clip of Stuart Rhodes saying he was going to hang that effing Nancy Pelosi from a lamppost. Yeah, I was really surprised, you know, reading through the indictment, just how much the government had in terms of, you know, emails, text messages, um, phone calls. I mean, there really was a very detailed trail uh, that these people uh, left behind, and that certainly made it, you know, much easier to, to put the case together. So what's then the connection or the link with this case and the subsequent cases of the more of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and and including its leader and Enrico Tario, in terms of Jack Smith and the new special counsel. What's he looking at in, the, in terms of these convictions, and how will yeah, they so, help him? So I'm not sure that Jack Smith will necessarily be directly involved in these. My understanding of the um, special prosecutor's appointment was that um, the, the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia would continue to um, handle the cases of the people who are physically present uh, in the Capitol, uh, and that Smith would be looking at the people who are who are not there. Um, so Smith, I think, you know, is looking at at Trump and other people uh, in the White House, uh, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, other folks um, like that will still be under uh, under the U.S. Attorney for uh, the District of Columbia. Now, I assume they will be cooperating, you know, pretty extensively um, with the special counsel, or special prosecutor, but they would be um, essentially, in, in many ways, separate lines uh, of cases. But I thought Smith's purview was both the January 6th uh, committee hearings and what they found out and uh, the Mar-a-Lago documents. So there seems yeah. to be a yeah, right, right. Here. So it's, Well, it's, yeah, so the Mar-a-Lago documents plus um, January 6th um, persons who were not physically present uh, at the Capitol. So in other words, because the whole point is to go above and beyond Stuart Rhodes and and Meg's right. right. I mean, the idea is you, yeah. these guys are the are the foot soldiers, and somebody higher up are the intellectual authors of this insurrection. Yeah, and I think part of the, you know the issue is with the, look at the Oath Keepers. They were um, in many ways like a very small cell of people that seemed to mostly interact with themselves. It was, it was a very sort of tightly um, run conspiracy. It's not clear that. You know, they were the ones who brought thousands of people uh, to the Capitol that day. So in some ways, it, it may be that their cases are um, sort of singular and uh, and distinctive, and there may not be that much connection between them uh, and, the, and the Proud Boys or potentially other people who, uh, who may have breached uh, the Capitol. Well, it would seem, though, that the fact that you could get a jury to convict people in in the Trump world and you know I don't know what the real figures are who support Trump you know there's almost a cult-like devotion to him so let's assume that it's at best 30 percent that means that you know you you could have three or four members of a 12-person jury right that that are Trumpsters and uh, that that would make it very difficult to get a conviction but I mean, you wouldn't it wouldn't get a conviction probably in a red state, but even in Washington D.C. So does this case prove that it's possible to get a an unbiased jury that's not? Well, it's 
it certainly shows you can you can get a conviction in these cases in the District of Columbia. But of course, the District of Columbia was a you know a jurisdiction that was you know overwhelmingly um, anti-Trump. Uh, you know, you probably uh, be very hard to get even even three Trump voters uh, on a jury in the District of Columbia. And so this is something that I think Trump. Um, would try to argue if he was indicted in the District of Columbia that he simply can't get a fair trial um, in the in the district, and that the case should be moved somewhere else, maybe moved over to Virginia or or, or someplace like that. Um, and I think certainly he'd be much happier, you know, being indicted in Florida um, than in uh, the District of Columbia. So that's something that the government's going to have to decide, um, particularly for something like the Mar-a-Lago documents, where you know moving them there would trigger the jurisdiction both of the district and of Florida. Well, apparently the Attorney General Merrick Garland was initially reluctant to pursue these cases, but he was apparently finally persuaded to sign off on it after, uh, I guess, the FBI were able to flip several cooperators and build evidence around the case. So, again, that indicates a certain caution on the part of the Attorney General who's been getting criticism all along for being overly cautious do you share that concern? You know, six months ago, I probably would have shared that concern that I thought, um, you know, that Garland really wasn't a professional prosecutor, um, too too much a by the books, you know, former appellate judge, very slow moving. Uh, he was on a D.C. circuit where cases dragged, you know, dragged on forever, um, and so that maybe he wasn't the right person in in this spot at this moment. Um, I'm coming around to a little more favorable view at the moment. I mean, I do think the signs we've seen um, are all indications that the Justice Department is taking all of these offenses seriously, um, that they don't view, you know, the president, the former president as someone who's above the law, uh, and that, you know, the wheels of justice, if they are moving slowly, are still moving. Um, and so I think that's all um, encouraging. And maybe in cases like this, having a former judge um, someone who's really not necessarily a political person, maybe that's ultimately um, better um, for the public perception of justice uh, in cases like this. Now, granted, there will be people who will never you know, accept it no matter what, um, but um, I'm at least consciously optimistic that um, justice will ultimately be done. So in the last minute, I take it you don't share the, a lot of the legal critics and pundits felt that Garland's appointment of a special counsel was kind of a dodge, that he was basically, there's a potential that this could be dragged out further. And that... Yeah, I don't, I don't think that the appointment will drag things out any, any longer. And I think it's a perfectly defensible decision. I mean, the point of the special prosecutor is when you think there's some type of, of conflict of interest that would, um, you know, make the ordinary processes seem... Um, unfair, even if they're not unfair, but they, could they be perceived as unfair? And I think a situation where um, a person running for president, Donald Trump, uh, is uh, potentially running, assuming Joe Biden runs again, as he's indicated he, he wants to do, uh, and then have a prosecution of Trump overseen by Merrick Garland, who answers to Joe Biden and can be fired uh, by Joe Biden, it, I think it certainly creates a perception um, that the Justice Department might be biased um, in this case. And so uh, I think being, you know, Garland is very cautious. This is sort of the cautious move um, to have a special prosecutor um, who's not going to be, you know, really sort of directly answerable to Joe Biden, not appointed uh, by Joe Biden, um, makes it um, look, um, you know, much more 
fair. Mm-hmm. Well, Carlton Lawson, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Sure. And again, I've been speaking with Carlton Lawson, who's a professor of constitutional law and legal history at the University of California, Davis. He's one of the nation's leading authorities on the laws of treason and is the author of On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law and The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries and the American Revolution. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into America's cheerleaders for Vladimir Putin that include the Holocaust denying Nick Fuentes and Elon Musk. Well, I'm going to tell you fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. You're bound to lose. You fascists bound to lose. All oh, you fascists bound to lose. I said, all oh, you fascists bound to lose. Yes, all oh, you fascists bound to lose. You're bound to lose. You fascists bound to lose. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Mackey, a senior writer at The Intercept, who writes about national and international news through the prism of social media. Previously, he was a reporter and columnist for The New York Times, where he anchored the newspaper's breaking news blog, The Lead, for five years, and wrote a news analysis column, Open Source, from 2014 to 2016. His latest articles at The Intercept are left-wing voices are silenced on Twitter as far-right trolls advise Elon Musk. Rupert Murdoch is having the same problem Dr. Frankenstein once faced with his monster. And Twitter allowed Russian officials to share anti-Semitic cartoon of Zelensky. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Mackey. Thanks very much, Ian. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Robert. And uh, just to begin with the latest article I mentioned there, Twitter allowed Russian officials to share anti-Semitic cartoon of Zelensky. There's no question that Elon Musk is Putin's useful idiot. He tried to uh, get aboard a bogus peace plan that uh, was completely one-sided, that Putin was floating. And it leads me to question this whole pro-Putin caucus in the United States House of Representatives on the Republican side led by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. A lot of talk now in the press about the Thanksgiving dinner that Trump hosted at Mar-a-Lago with Kanye West and this white nationalist, anti-Semite, Holocaust denier. But what they don't mention so much about Nick Fuentes is that he's a huge pro-Putin booster. I mean, when he had uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar on stage with him, he was leading the chant of Putin, Putin, Putin. So what's going on on the American right here, or the far right? Why are they in love with this guy who's possibly the most unpopular person on the planet? Well, Ian, I think, you know, the, the roots of this um, pro-Putin, um, you know, fandom for the American right, they actually go back quite a quite a ways. And there's a way in which Trump kind of joined the bandwagon. I mean, he, he started leading it, obviously, eventually. But even before Trump emerged on the scene, Fox News was pretty obsessed. And a lot of the far right media was pretty obsessed with Putin. Um, I think it, they thought in contrast to Obama that he seemed sort of macho. There's like that element, just they thought he was macho. But obviously, there's another thing that is quite interesting, which is that you see a lot of the far right sees Putin's Russia, which is you know, makes essentially uh, criminalizes LGBTQ, 
uh, people uh, and has you know started this wave that's now washing across the US uh, of banning supposed gay propaganda of just you know dealing with any kind of educational or cultural documents that deal with people who are, are gay as you know being normal humans that that for a long time has been a focus of Russian propaganda and uh, Russian laws and so I think there's a way in which they kind of see him as uh, the sort of first of all, white, second of all, Christian nationalist uh, crusader and hero in these culture wars. So they start to overlap quite a lot. I mean, there's a very interesting ways in which you see this uh, you know, far right libs of TikTok Twitter account that dominates uh, a lot of the thinking of what you see on Fox News and in other uh, right wing websites that sort of finds targets to, to attack. You see this echoed in Russian newspapers and on Russian television, it's quite amazing. Uh, there's influence going both ways. But yeah, I think it's basically that they see themselves as being on the same side of a, a fabricated culture war that they use to sort of push their own ideology. So what more damage can be done, do you think? Because it's pretty clear that Putin uh, helped Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I remember the one of the last things that Mueller said in his ill-fated public hearing which was somewhat disappointing, shall we say. He said the, the Russians are still doing it and they're doing it now. And presumably their active measures would be pretty intense now, wouldn't they? Because if you follow Russian media, as you do, prior to this midterm, the Russian state media was over the moon about the red wave. They were really anticipating that the Republicans would win big in the House and then the first thing McCarthy would do would be cut off aid to Ukraine. So presumably they're not giving up on that mission, right, to influence the Republicans to cut off aid. And they've got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who seems to have an outsized influence in this upcoming Congress. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, as far as I understand it, I think that what you have, whether you can identify specific active measures taking place or not, I mean, I think that it's clear that in the core strategy for Russia has been to identify fissure points in Western societies and to encourage reactionaries. And you know that, that basically means that if you have weaknesses in your kind of own culture and society, places where people are ready to fight with each other, um, it doesn't take a lot to get that going before it kind of spins off itself. You know, we saw this also with the Russians are quite obsessed with um, you know, smearing and, and attacking Black Lives Matter as well. Uh, they, they see racial fissures and they push on them. And they, they're they really incredibly obsessed with all of this hysteria over uh, transgender people and, um, you know, any, any idea that somehow, essentially they're pushing this old idea that being gay is being a pedophile. And that's constantly churned out in Russian media. And also, uh, even Putin talks about it in some of his speeches recently, he's actually brought these things up and they're just obsessive. It's a very bizarre obsession. Um, but I think as they push it forward, uh, especially now that things are very diffused through the internet, people don't know if they're reading something online, on Twitter, who is this person really? Uh, it's almost impossible to identify. And it will be impossible if you don't have the kind of really intense effort at content moderation that the previous Twitter uh, ownership and the management had gotten quite good at and quite sophisticated at blocking, uh, you know, that what they discovered to be 
state-supported networks uh, that were intentionally pushing disinformation and propaganda on their platform and getting rid of them. And obviously, it appears that uh, Musk is extremely sympathetic, to put it mildly, to the Russian war aims in Ukraine. And so, you know, he, he seems to just completely buy the argument, whether it's a cover for his own ideology, uh, right-wing ideology, or he's just unbelievably gullible. He just buys the argument of these right-wing activists who are telling him on Twitter and he's interacting with that uh, the left is the problem and they have to ban all these things. You know, he he's obsessed with the idea that there's a woke, so-called woke ideology that we need to overcome. And uh, he's opening the platform to that, which I think has its own impact. You know, something we were writing about this week, it becomes difficult for anybody to use the platform if it's in the Steve Bannon's words, the zone is flooded with shit. it becomes hard to use. And I think this is an intentional strategy that we know Putin deployed to respond to protests, you know, protesters against his own rule uh, about a decade ago, protests that were organized online, a way to disarm that besides locking everyone up, which they also do, is to just make the social network such an unpleasant, awful place to be and to make information that you come across so unreliable that it becomes uh, almost impossible to use uh, for political organizing or, you know, be, uh, people bonding together and trying to do things in the real world. It's it's sort of like, you know, it's basically just making it, making the platform unbearable for everybody else. And you can see that happening already with Twitter. I, you know, just a, a short report I did this week before we wrote anything, I tweeted about one quite well, uh, you know, very, very successful anti-fascist open source researcher, uh, Chad Loader, who was suspended from the platform, just tweeting about that with an article about that I'd previously written about Loader's work, identifying people who were at the Capitol riot. Just that tweet brought down thousands and thousands of really vile responses towards me. And I, you know, you're, you can just ignore these things, but in a way, uh, if you're using the platform for research or journalism or to try and like find out about the world, you can't completely just close off to what people say. So it makes it really, really tricky to use, even for people like me. Obviously, for activists and people who are in the middle of these debates, it can become vile and even dangerous. You know, we, we see that people have been posting home addresses of journalists and activists online and encouraging uh, harassment. Uh, and threatening them in real life. So it's definitely, it's, it's, it's certainly making the platform harder to use, and it might ultimately mean that people have to find other ways to organize if they can't use Twitter. So Musk then is probably the premier purveyor of these myths, the, the myth of Antifa being this powerful group when in fact it's, it's diverse and amorphous and completely unstructured as far as I can tell. Black Lives Matter, you know, is not ex exactly a, taking over the country. And the more pervasive myth of all, which they completely manufactured, is that conservative voices have been stifled. So he touches all three bases, does he not? Absolutely. And I mean, this is the, if there was one response to our article that I, I saw over and over again, there were variations on the theme from people who clearly hadn't read it because it shows, it gives evidence that for prominent left-wing accounts were suspended for no apparent reason. But there, was, but there was one response, which was literally just people tweeting back at the headlines saying, oh, right-wing, you didn't care when right-wing people were stifled for their political views. But there's really no evidence that that ever happened. They just 
created this out of thin air by saying it over and over and over again. People were banned. Trump, for instance, was banned for doing something quite dangerous, for inciting a failed coup attempt uh, through statements on Twitter, for calling people to a so-called, you know, a protest that would be wild in Trump's words. Uh, and, you know, a lot of other people who were banned are very clearly documented neo-Nazis, white supremacists, people who are saying racist hate speech on there. And there's an idea, you know, I, I lived part of my life in, in Europe. Euro European countries often have laws against this kind of thing where uh, they don't have a sort of absolute free speech idea. And if you incite violence against someone with speech, you can be held criminally liable for that. In the United States, you're not held criminally liable, but it seems reasonable for people on a voluntary social network that some people want to join to ask that that platform be made a place where they don't have their lives threatened or they don't have to face you know, racist hate speech. And Musk seems to think that that would be fine, uh, although with some exceptions, with their, we've seen people banned uh, under Musk's uh, you know, regime on Twitter for doing things like tweeting a photograph of him standing alongside Ghislaine Maxwell or people making fun of him. So obviously, uh, he doesn't really have this commitment to radical free speech that he claims. It's just part of this general right-wing uh, explanation that the reason they're banned is the suppression of free speech rather than the suppression of hate speech. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, we've just had the convictions of the leaders of the Oath Keepers, and there's more Oath Keepers on trial under the Civil War Statute of Sedition, as well as Proud Boys. Uh, their trials are coming up as well. But in the Constitution, of course, you have treason mentioned, and treason in, in part is giving aid and comfort to the enemy. It's in the, literally in the Constitution. Isn't that what's happening here, the aid and comfort to the enemy being Putin? Putin is clearly uh, obsessed with the United States. He's a, he's not a military guy. You can see that from the disastrous war that he's he's bungling in Ukraine. But he is an intel guy, and and he knows how to to exploit our weak spots and turn us against each other. And post truth America is now rife with look at the greatest myth of all uh, that is metastasized into a bedrock belief amongst Republicans that Donald Trump won the last election. I mean, it's unbelievable. Did you watch the hearings down in Arizona for, for to certify the votes, the people that were protesting? They're in an alternative yeah. reality, but they're passionate. They're, they really believe that voting officials are evil and that Donald Trump is being unjustly denied his rightful place. Yeah, I think to me, you know, Ian, I, I covered, um, when I was at the Times, I live blogged some of the 2014 uprising and protests in uh, Kyiv that, that became known as the Euromaidan uprising, which toppled the pro-Russian president, who himself had previously uh, cheated to win an election uh, in, you know, a decade earlier. But the, what, what's kind of fascinating is that I think the entire idea of Putin supporting Trump and pushing... Uh, for chaos in the US was to do something like create a Maidan, create a chaotic uprising on the streets in the United States. And to me, in my mind, there's nothing more similar that's happened in American history to uh, the Maidan in Ukraine, which was chaotic and in which the 
vaguely speaking left-wing forces uh, pushed out the right-wing pro-Putin forces. The, there's, we've never seen anything that looked just as much like that moment as the storming of the Capitol. When January 6th is in you know, large part, however it came about, it's, it, it's exactly what Putin would have wanted. He wanted sort of completely uh, chaotic scenes of Americans fighting Americans in hand-to-hand -hand combat, fighting with the police, total chaos and hatred, and creating a fissure that makes it, you know, uh, something like a, a, on, on the road, at least to a civil war. And it's quite amazing when you consider that that was a protest that started on Facebook, the Ukrainian one in 2013-2014. That was a protest that was successfully organized on social media, that toppled the government, and you know, started started all over again. The the society and the government started again, and you know we saw the same sort of strategy playing out on January sixth. The build up to it, what Trump wanted, what was happening. The you know they managed to paralyze for a few hours the functioning of the U.S. government, the transfer of power. So I think these things, you know, whether there's a simple plan and A leads to B leads to C. I think when you look at it from 2014 and then what happened on January sixth. There's a straight line there. Uh, and what Putin has done is exacted revenge on the United States for supporting those protests by trying to put the same sort of societal division and chaos at the heart of American politics. And he's got willing accomplices here in the United States, uh, including the leader of the Republican Party. Absolutely. I thank you for joining us, Robert Mackey. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thank you very much. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Mackey, a senior writer at The Intercept, who writes about national and international news through the prism of social media. Previously, he was a reporter and columnist for The New York Times, where he anchored the newspaper's breaking news blog, The Lead, for five years and wrote news analysis column, Open Source, from 2014 to 2016. His latest articles at The Intercept are left-wing voices are silenced on Twitter as far-right trolls advise Elon Musk. Rupert Murdoch is having the same problem Dr. Frankenstein once faced with his monster, and Twitter allowed Russian officials to share anti-Semitic cartoon of Zelensky. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into an alarming article in Tuesday's Los Angeles Times. Fentanyl deaths in L.A. County soared 1,280 percent between 2016 and 2021. When you care about Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now to discuss an alarming article in Tuesday's Los Angeles Times, fentanyl deaths in Los Angeles County soared 1,280% between 2016 and 2021, report finds, is Sam Quinones, a journalist, author, and storyteller whose two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration, True Tales from Another Mexico and Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. 
His books include Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and his latest book just out in paperback is The Least of Us, True Tales of America, Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sam Quinones. Great to be here. Thanks very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Sam. And the article in yesterday's LA Times is so alarming that 70,000 people die annually from overdoses linked to synthetic opioids. And in Los Angeles County, the number of deaths linked to fentanyl rose from 109 in 2016 to 1,504 in 2021, which means it was a 1,280% increase, according to a new study from the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. So there's an epidemic across the country, and um, I'm actually curious to know, I noticed that the Republicans are picking up on it, making it a an election issue. They were and will continue to do so. Why don't you think this has become, a, you know, in other words, why haven't the Democrats and Biden picked up on this? This is something that's permeating middle America, suburban America. Yeah. Oh, it's an ex- excellent question. I, I can't answer. I really, I mean, I think it's, it's something that, first of all, is extraordinarily important all across the country. It's, it's you know, uh, you're finding uh, fentanyl at, at rock bottom prices in Maine, according to an addict I talked to there recently. Uh, you're finding it on, on, on Skid Row in L.A. You're finding it just like everywhere in between, killing lots and lots of people. I'm not really sure why this hasn't been able, to, why they haven't been able to address this in a more forceful way. And in particular, have a top level continuing meetings and discussions and, and action together with the Mexican government, which uh, is also, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of paid no attention to this at all, from what I can tell. Uh, anyway, it's an excellent question. I'm not sure I know the answer to it. Well, at least the Drug Enforcement Administration seemed to be aware of it, and they're very concerned about Snapchat and Facebook and other social media sites, according to the head of the DEA, that Snapchat and other social media sites have become the super highway of drugs. We see it all this all the time. People will be in a chat about something they care about, a concert or something, and dealers will come in and try to connect with these people. And unfortunately, uh, because of a feature with Snapchat, the converse, these conversations are erased after 24 hours, which makes it more difficult for law enforcement to track it down. So why, since these social media sites are so identifiable and bear some responsibility, why can't something be done? Why don't they do something? Well, about I think that uh, they're, they're using the, the argument that they've long used, which is we're a platform, not, not an editorial, you know, uh, we don't have an editorial function. So therefore, a monitoring everybody who's on our site is, is, uh, is not what we, what we do. They may have other arguments besides that as well, I think. But and so, yes, the, these have become the new street corner, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, et cetera, become other places as well on, on, online. And particularly during COVID, when so many people were uh, connection to the world was through their phone, particularly young people. And, and, and a lot of the time, the, the, the people who are selling it aren't much older than the people they're selling to. Uh, that's also been the case. You know, the, the kids may be buying it at 15 and 16. The guy's selling it maybe 19. 21 years years old. But all of this, I have to say this, all of this is an ent- entirely a function of the enormous supply that is being made in Mexico 
and coming out of Mexico smuggled into the United States. It's all a function of supply. You you have you have the very the very innovative uh, in, in quotes um, idea that you can instead of sending up bricks of fentanyl powder, you transform it into a pill. And Americans love their pills, and now we're, they're sending up these pills. What I take to be has to, must be in the tens of millions by now, given the slim of the seizures that are routinely in the hundreds of thousands. But all of this is prodded by simply the, the 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 very diffuse, very broad trafficking world of Mexico um, being able to make quantities of fentanyl, and I'd say also methamphetamine is part of the story as well. Um, and the quantities that are just just staggering because they have access to the world's chemical markets through shipping ports that they that they basically control, and hence meaning that they have almost limit unlimited uh, access to the, the world world chemicals that they can then bring into Mexico and make these drugs in the quantities that we're seeing. But all of the all of that stuff with Snapchat and and all these other things. It's all a function of the just enormous supply coming out of Mexico right now. And they these so-called hot pills that are killing kids. I mean, in the, in the press conference uh, yeah. yest- yesterday at the Los Angeles County Department of Health, a mother, Julie Shamish, who lost her 19-year-old son, Tyler, who died four years ago of an overdose uh, a pill that was laced with fentanyl, she said, fentanyl is killing everyone and anyone. To the parents out there that think, not my child, think again. This is killing straight-age students, track stars, all races, all religions, all socioeconomic groups. And I happen to know a, a family who lost their, I think, 17, 18-year-old son. He thought he was he was getting on Snapchat, I think, or, or TikTok. He'd run out of his the medication he was taking for anxiety, and he went online and right. thought he was getting the pill to you know to bridge the time between his prescription got refilled, and it just killed him. And the, and the parents had yeah. to kick the door down because they they hadn't heard from him. And you know he the kid was not a drug addict. These kids are not drug addicts. Right. So many, so many, so many of the cases. I went to a, a protest in front of Snapchat headquarters. It was in um, June, I believe, of 2021. And it was all these young, young people um, and, and their parents there with posters saying Snapchat is complicit in the murder of my son, daughter, whatever. It, most of that was during the COVID year uh, when kids were on their phones and had no other contact with the world. But again, I, you know, uh, I sound like a broken record sometimes, I think. But the, again, this is all because the Mexican trafficking world has solved the great conundrum that every street dealer from time immemorial has had to deal with. And that is, where do I get my dope to sell? Now, that is not a problem. Now, the question is, where do I sell all the dope that I can get my hands on? Because I can get my hands on a lot. And, and, and so, hence, you've seen the uh, emergence in, by the tens of millions, I, again, I insist, um, the, uh, of these pills. And, and, and therefore, their prevalence at parties, their prevalence at, at just get-togethers, and, and, and so on, that are uh, 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 fooling or, or in, in some way, um, uh, uh, kids who, who have no background and certainly no tolerance to the fentanyl that's in each and every one of these pills. Well, the L.A. County school system now is distributing Narcan at school libraries to because right. it's obviously kids, even a schooler, 
at doing these pills. Yes, exactly. And 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 there there a lot of them is Adderall, you know, uh, or or uh, or Xanax bars. They're 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 made to look like Xanax bars. I've even seen a Tylenol, uh, a phony Tylenol with fentanyl only in it. And so yes, that's and you're seeing. I've heard colleges having uh, Narcan on every on every floor in the dormitories and this kind of thing. All of this, again, you know, is because of what's coming out of uh, out of Mexico in such ghastly quantities. But it it seems that there's a in the case of the, that I know about personally, the police weren't particularly helpful. And on the kid's phone, the, the kid who died thinking he was getting Adderall or no, Xanax, I think it was. There was the call from this this guy Carlos, you know, and you'd think that the, that they'd be able to. I mean, the DEA do have some people on the case, but it doesn't sound like that the kind of numbers are particularly uh, effective. We're talking well, about. Well, I, I would say what's what I've in my conversations with departments, and there are many that have tried prosecuting these cases as homicides, taking it up the chain and finding out who got it, where this kid got it, where, where that guy got it, et cetera. And you're seeing a lot of that now. Um, one of the problems, and I'm not sure it's a problem in this case, but I, I would say that one of the problems is you have to establish chain of custody of the dope. Did you have this pill and did you sell this pill that killed this kid to this kid and did that kid then take it and that kind of thing. And there, there is, it's not a simple, these are not simple cases. And particularly not when you are finding dead cor- corpses with toxicology reports that show that they have several drugs in them at the same time, like THC, uh, meth, uh, a lot of different things. There are frequently coroners, medical examiners are, are a little bit less, are somewhat reluctant to deem the cause of death, uh, even though fentanyl is, is most likely the case, uh, the, the, the culprit, um, it, it, when you have other drugs on board, it's very difficult and it's very hard to then make that through a, a trial, that approve that in trial. This is, these are some of the issues that come up. I know, having spoken with a lot of, 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 of folks who've, who've um, at different departments around the country, try to bring these homicide cases, trying to find who is the person selling this, and, and did that person... Um, no, did that person sell something that 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 actually included fentanyl? I mean, it's 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 not an e- these are not easy cases uh, to make, and although they have been made, and they have certainly have been made, and they can be made, it's just not the easiest one. Sometimes I've noted uh, when it when it comes down to it. Well, in 2021, there was a set a new record of 107,622 overdose deaths, and between May and September of this year, the DEA conducted 390 drug poisoning investigations, and of those, 129 had direct ties to social media. So the ratio between yeah. the investigations, the, say 400 and 107,000 overdose deaths, is pretty paltry. It, it's, it's, it's small, there's no doubt. On the other hand, you know, we have... We have spent a lot of time talking about ways of, of, of cutting uh, law enforcement budgets. These are, again, it's really important to understand. I'm not making excuses. Uh, I, you can talk to the DEA and they can explain to you why it is th- those figures are the way they are. I am always, though, taken by 
how difficult these cases are to make. They are not slam dunk cases. They are very difficult. They can be given if all the facts line up, if certain this this happens and this happens and so on. But but I'm I'm struck also by by the, the complexity of the case and proving exactly who had what, when, where, all that kind of stuff is is not is not so easy as it may appear to uh, folks on the outside. But what about having education efforts at schools themselves and have, you know, like the, the parent who oh, lost I think his son. I think that's happening. I think that's happening right now. And I think the, the, the headlines are pushing that forward. Uh, now you've got, you've got kids. I think, I think in fact, kids are seeing that this is not when, when I was first talking about this, when my book came out a year ago, people would say, Oh, you, this is just the same drug scare tactics as existed in 1950s and, uh, you know, uh, reefer madness. I mean, I, one, one person actually said, that's oh, like reefer madness. Come on. This is, you know, and I'm like, well, no, I don't think that's what's happening. I think it's extraordinarily dangerous and, and it's going to get more so. And, and we need to understand that the drug, that all those myths that were perpetrated about uh, the drugs in the 1950s, all those myths have become reality. You can go mad from one from from methamphetamine. You can drop dead from a line of cocaine that has fentanyl in it. You can die from from very easily from what's what whatever's called heroin on the street these days. I'm struck by how the headlines are pushing this. This is no longer like a joke. It's no longer like some propaganda film. This is reality, and it just happens to to um, to, to be fairly. <laughs> Scary. And so when you're asking this question, I'm reminded of when I was first doing interviews about the least of us and how people would say, oh, I heard this several times. Oh, this is just scare tactics again. How do we know this isn't just scare tactics again? Well, I think we're finding out that it's not. It's absolutely a, a terrifying idea. And it's very difficult. It means the end. Fentanyl has effectively spelled the end of, you know, what we knew growing up as the uh, the recreational drug, the era of recreational drug use, where you could use drugs without much risk. Now, every time you use drugs, it's extraordinarily risky and, and, and basically amounts to a game of Russian roulette. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, Sam Quinones, earlier this year, Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill that would have allowed... Um, drug-using sites or injection sites uh, to be launched through a pilot program in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Oakland. And it, it's and this, of course, has happened already in New York City and in uh, Rhode Island. But he vetoed it presumably because he's uh, has presidential ambitions and figured uh, he didn't want to be associated with uh, making heroin available or something like that. Uh, so... There's a problem with our politicians. I started the conversation out with you by saying, you know, how come the Republicans are seizing on this fentanyl issue uh, in their so-called war on crime and the Democrats are silent? So um, what do you make of that? I would say that it, it sounded to me, too, like Gavin Newsom did that because he wanted to um, preserve his uh, presidential prospects. And I don't think that that is a proper uh, reason for vetoing policy. There may be other reasons to veto that. That 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 idea. I don't. I have not studied those to the extent I probably need to. I would say though that there is no. Here's the thing about fentanyl. It's very important to keep this in mind. There is no such thing as a long-term fentanyl user. 
people die from fentanyl in ways they never did with heroin very quickly. And, and so the longer our policy is, we're going to keep you using fentanyl and try to reduce the harm of it, that may work. And it may work for a while. But I think in the long run, that person, and maybe not so long run, that person is going to die, whether or not that we have these safe injection sites or not. That what, it, what it means is, what you're saying is that that person would have to be at that safe injection site every time he used. And I think the life of an addict is not that orderly. And eventually that person is going to, you know, the first person who told me that is himself, that, that, every, that there's no such thing as a long-term street fentanyl user, is himself dead from a fentanyl overdose. And so I think that is the, the rule of the street. That's the fentanyl rule of the street, that everybody dies. Unless you are camped out next to a, a safe injection site, you are going to die. The, the, the nature of fentanyl is to take you in and out very quickly, meaning you have to constantly be using. A person who would use heroin twice a day is most likely going to have to be using fentanyl four, five, six, uh, one guy I talked to said he now had to use seven times a day because fentanyl, what makes it a great anesthetic is that it takes you in and out of anesthesia. By the way, it is a magnificent anesthetic. It, it has revolutionized anesthesia in America. And since 1960, when it was first uh, brought on the market, it's a magnificent drug when used properly. And one reason for that is it takes you in and out of anesthesia very quickly. The problem is, that um, on the street, when it's used illicitly, you now need to take account for that. And so what ends up happening is people end up using, again, four, five, six, seven times a day. That means that you have to effectively camp out at the, at, the, at the site, at the safe injection site, to not overdose because you, there, you are going to be using all, all, day, all day long on the on on the, the pills in, that are coming out of Mexico are coming in such amazing amounts that they are now being smoked. People on the border, like I've talked to people in Southern Arizona, a significant number of sources down there told me that we're seeing people now smoke fentanyl pills, 50 to 100 fentanyl pills a day. That's a, a, a relentless rat race to always keep the drug, the, 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 the dope sickness at bay. And uh, there's almost nothing you're, you're doing except looking for and using the, the drug. And as long as our policy is, we're going to keep you alive using this drug until you, until you stop. I, I just think that that is, that is a policy that is going to end up in a lot of people dying because nobody can, no addict's life is that orderly. It's a complete chaos, you know? So I, I think we're not, we should not be in a position of saying no to any option. I really do believe that we're in a position, we ought to be in a position of saying, let's try it all. Let's see what works. However, I do know that the, the nature of fentanyl is such that it does not, it is a absolute beast of withdrawal and it, and it, it requires you to use all, all day long. And, and, and that might be possible if you're right next to the safe injection site all day long. Well, Sam Quinones, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great to be with you, and thanks for the call. 
And again, I've been speaking with Sam Quinones, who's a journalist, author, and storyteller, whose two acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction about Mexico and Mexican immigration, True Tales from Another Mexico, and Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream, made him, according to the San Francisco Chronicle Book Review, the most original writer on Mexico and the border. His books include Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and his latest book, just out in paperback, is The Least of Us, True Tales of America, Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Way.